Brothers and sisters, good evening. I want to begin by saying thank you to Ryan for the uh, acclamation on my Twitter account and that I do not tweet cat pictures. Because if I did, my boss, Russell Moore, would uh, uh, summarily fire me within just a few seconds afterward. First off, I want to say too, how great was Owen Strand's message? It was wonderful. And what's even more wonderful about his message is that it keys up the rest of this weekend perfectly, and it keys up my topic perfectly as well, and that's the topic of religious liberty. So I'm the second speaker for the night, which means we're starting to get a little bit more tired, but we're going to be talking about a subject that is inherently difficult. It's an inherently philosophical topic. It's something that requires us to take a deep dive into several different disciplines. So over the next 45 minutes, stay with me as we talk about a doctrine and a principle so fundamental to not only what it means to be an image bearer, but also what it means for a free society and for a free country. Before embarking on his missionary journey to India, William Carey famously told Andrew Fuller, I will go down into the pit if you will hold the ropes. Now, most people remember Carey as one of the fathers of the modern missionary movement, but fewer remember Fuller as the man who organized, raised funds, and built a lasting enterprise to ensure the success of ministries like Carey's. And today, missions movements are still enabled by what, I, by what I would call rope holders, committed believers who pray, who send money, and staff organizations that equip and send missionaries to foreign lands. But there's another aspect of gospel advance that also goes unnoticed. And it's an aspect that facilitates the very possibility of missions itself. It's the fight for religious liberty. It's what the American tradition calls the first freedom, and which today is facing obstacles at unlike any other point in American history. So getting asked to speak about religious liberty at a conference about how to live as pilgrims in a strange land seems somewhat contradictory. Think about it. What about religious liberty helps us be better pilgrims? What about religious liberty helps us understand to be exiles in a strange land? But what about religious liberty helps us or helps us understand the bloody cross and the resurrection? And today, many evangelicals even reject this idea of religious liberty altogether because they don't like this concept of rights. Because when we talk about rights, sometimes rights seems contrary to the witness of, witness of Christ who set aside his rights for the sake of others and who we're told to mimic. So there's this question of, can we as Christians talk about rights in America when our Christ set aside his rights for the sake of others? As I prepared this talk, I thought about all the ways that many of you in this room could be cynical about this topic. Now, some of you in here hear the term religious liberty and you think it's just an immediately a political topic. And when po politics is brought up, there's a knee-jerk reaction that says, no, let's just make theology great again and leave politics out of it. Others of you are tired of this topic because you associate it with the religious right and the culture war something that Owen mentioned. For some, religious liberty is about a form of Christian identity politics that's about setting our rights 
our privileges up and against other groups in America. And many in this room are entirely uncomfortable with the topic because religious liberty now in contemporary pop culture is a synonym or a dog whistle for just being anti-gay if you've paid any attention to current debates in states like Arizona and Indiana. I come here today to discuss a topic that is more misunderstood and more maligned than at any other time in our history. So this raises the question of how do we talk about religious liberty? How do we frame it? Is, public poli- or is religious liberty a public policy issue? And yes, and we could talk the rest of the afternoon or this evening just on this topic alone. We could talk about bakers, florists, and photograph- photographers and why it's wrong to make the state coerce people into using their creative talents for a service they find morally problematic. So it's a public policy issue. Is religious liberty a political issue? And most certainly it is. We could talk about the ways in which activist groups like the Human Rights Campaign are trying to tighten the belt on Christian institutions who receive federal funding, but who also have statements of faith about gender, marriage, and sexuality, And these groups believe that if Christian institutions want to hold fast to their doctrinal commitments and also receive federal funding that these groups consider discriminatory, that these institutions have to sacrifice their identity. And ladies and gentlemen, this is where the crux of the matter is happening right now in society. Religious religious liberty is about ethics. It's about the role of religion in the public square. You might ask, is it about theology? And yes, because religious liberty is intricately tied to conceptions of ultimate being and ultimate authority. And when we talk about religious liberty, we can't not talk about being, God's being, and authority, and to whom our conscience is owed. And maybe some of you are even wondering, is religious liberty really even Christian at all? Is it just a vague doctrine about natural rights that our founders concocted in the 18th century? And the point of this talk is a simple yes to that question, that religious liberty is a Christian doctrine. And to talk about religious liberty is to mix all of these categories together because religious liberty is a fundamental doctrine to the church and to the state and to humanity. So let's talk about the goals of this talk. The goals are many because I want to show why religious liberty is first, a biblical doctrine. It's a doctrine essential to human dignity. Third, a doctrine essential to the state's purpose. Fourth, religious liberty is essential to free societies. Fifth, it's essential to the church's mission. And lastly, towards the end of this talk, I want to help pull some of you who are cynical about this topic and who might be tempted to cast this topic aside and bow out of the culture. And I want to persuade you and contend with you on why, as Christians, you don't have the authority or the right to let this issue go. So first, let's begin with this question. Is religious liberty biblical? Now, I want to begin with kind of a thought experiment that nowhere in the Bible does it it say that two plus two equals four. There aren't mathematical equations in the Bible. But if you're like me, you've been taught that the Bible is the highest authority that, affo- that informs our understanding of the Christian faith and shapes how we see the world. 
So if there isn't a verse that says two plus two equals four, does that still mean it's true? And the answer is obviously yes. It's because God created all minds to understand logical truth. As Owen said in his, in his talk, to be created in the image of God is to, to be um, possessed with the ability to reason and to be self-aware and to think. It isn't just Christians that understand that two plus two equals four. It's a simple fact of our existence. If you're sitting and listening to this talk, it means that God put your mind together with the capacity to read and make sense of letters and words and audible sounds. In a sense, Psalm 24.1 speaks to these truths, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. If you're here today, you've been possessed with the ability to think, to reason, to be self-aware, and that everything, whether knowledge, mathematics, or the enjoyment of music, exists because it exists in God's world, and God holds the world together, as we see in John 1, and Genesis 1, and Colossians 1. And so from this little thought experiment, we learn an important truth that will help guide our thinking as we discuss religious liberty. And it's namely that there are explicit truths of Scripture, and there are implicit truths of Scripture. We can't tell from the text that two plus two is equals four, but when we know how God made our minds, we can then understand that, yes, according to how God made our minds and, and what we see in the Bible, yes, two plus two equals four. But nowhere in the Bible does the, does the Bible talk about the molecular composition of oxygen. Yet we'd all affirm that the importance of breathing oxygen is implied in how God chose to create humanity and the truths of mathematics make sense because God is the author of logic itself. And so therefore, we must understand that religious liberty as an implied truth of Scripture, one we see throughout all of Scripture, but though not explicitly stated. It doesn't say anywhere that you shall have religious liberty. But when we look at several passages in Scripture, we begin to kind of deduce this principle that, yeah, religious liberty is there lurking behind the text. And so tonight, we want to help figure out where it is in the text. To begin with, we might want to look at the Ten Commandments. In the very first one, God commands the Israelites in Exodus 23, saying, you shall have no other gods before me. So ask yourself, why does this matter to religious liberty? Because God is teaching that nothing should set itself up as a God that isn't Yahweh, the God of Israel. Because God is ultimate, it is wrong when things set themselves up as gods that aren't God. When Genesis 1-1 says that God created, it implies that God and only God is sovereign. It didn't say that the United States created. <clears throat> so any discussion about religious liberty must begin with God as the lone sovereign creator and author of life. What does this mean? It means that whenever a movement, a figure, or a government attempts to play the part of God, it acts grievously wrong when it tries to command obedience in ways that are reserved for God alone, it acts haughtily, absolutized, and tyrannical. A created entity, and all nation states are created entities, cannot and should not play the role of a creator. And nothing should set itself up as ultimate that isn't actually ultimate. It especially means that institutions, Movements, persons, or governments shouldn't act to determine truths in areas that don't belong to it. 
For example, it would, wouldn't be right for my daughter's teacher to tell my daughter to disobey what my wife and I have instructed her. A teacher doesn't have ultimate authority over my daughter in the ways that my wife and I do. In the same way, a government shouldn't tell a citizen who God is or how God wants to be worshipped. It is right and good for persons, governments, or institutions to restrict themselves to the areas that they are designed to have authority over. A government is designed to see that laws are followed and citizens protected. The government isn't designed to tell you or me what the meaning of baptism is or to coerce other citizens' beliefs. Now, for fear of being wrongly interpreted as just a fire-breathing, God-and-country, religious, conservative, evangelical, which I'm not those things, even though I am a uh, religious, right, conservative, Christian, evangelical. <laughs> not a God-and-country. I, I don't want to, please hear me, I don't want to be up here and, and baptize the founders as all evangelical Christians. That's not what I want to do. But I do want to quote from James Madison, who was um, one of our nation's founders of religious liberty and one of the architects of our Constitution. And this quote is kind of lengthy, and it's filled with a lot of language that only 18th century, highly intellectual British or English men would use. But it's so central to understanding what was going on at our founding concerning religious liberty and why what I'm about to quote is so central to actually what the Bible is screaming about religious liberty. James Madison wrote this. It is the duty of every man to render to the creator such honor and such only as he believes to be acceptable to him. This duty is precedent, both in order of time and in degree of obligation to the claims of civil society. Before any man can be considered as a member of civil society, he must be considered as a subject of the governor of the universe. And if a member of civil society who enters into any subordinate association, he must always do it with a reservation of his duty to the general authority. Much more must every man who becomes a member of any particular civil society do it with a saving of his allegiance to the universal sovereign. What Madison argues is what the Bible is implicitly shouting from its very first verse. Madison is arguing that a person's relationship to God is prior to any other relationship that a person has. How a person understands what is true, good, and beautiful are such transcendent truths that according to Madison, the government has no rightful authority to control. And we look across the world, and, and Owen mentioned Chairman Mao in China and the tyrannical regimes of communism, and it's no accident that the political structures most hostile to human freedom were also the most hostile to religion. Why? Why is that? Because religion's commitments to beliefs or ethics are higher than what the state can control or ask of a citizen. A state, a tyrannical state, sees religion as an inherent challenge to its claim of authority. So when we talk about religious liberty, we're ultimately talking about who has ultimate authority. Is it God 
Or is it men who come together in nation states who are then threatened by the place of religion? What does this mean practically? It means that the state should not set itself up as Lord or God over the conscience. That government employees shouldn't be intercessors and that judges shouldn't be the priests. I, um, I, I say this everywhere I go and it helps kind of juxtapose what's going on with religious liberty in the Bible, that when the state honors the First Amendment, that is, when it provides for the free exercise of religion, it is less likely to betray or violate the First Commandment, which demands that we have no other gods other than God, the Father of Jesus Christ. So when a state honors the First Amendment, it's less likely to violate the First Commandment. So the issue before us is one of authority and allegiances. To whom does our conscience belong? To God or to the state? And if the state can tell you what is or isn't acceptable belief about matters relating to God and ultimate morality, ask yourself, what can't it do? If it can dictate your thoughts on God and ultimate morality, it has no limits on itself. In Acts, we read about the very early church and their insistence that another king, King Jesus, reigns more supreme than Caesar. If you have your Bibles, um, you can go there very quickly. It's Acts 17, 6 through 7. And Luke says this, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they, are all a- and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So when the church announces that Jesus is Lord, a claim is being made that trumps all other claims that any king, Caesar, or president may make. The announcement that Jesus is Lord subjects all other authorities to the highest authority, This means, church, that we don't take our ultimate orders from any president or any legislature, but ultimately from King Jesus himself. So the next question is, why is religious liberty essential to human dignity? What about religious liberty coincides with this understanding of the image of God? Like Owen mentioned in the previous talk, In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God announces something unique about his creation of humanity. That only only humans would resemble or image God. Something is precious and unique to humanity that is unlike other parts of creation. So being created in the image of God means that every human being, born and unborn, is created with dignity and worth. Every human, on the basis of being alive, is deserving of certain rights and respect. To, quote, to, to reread Genesis 1, 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the, he- of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This matters to religious liberty because every person, whether Christian or not, cannot be coerced in the kingdom of God. Every person is endowed with a conscience who must determine for himself or herself who God ultimately is. Now, 
while we may disagree with who a person understands God to be, every person has the right to seek God for himself or herself. The rights of individuals to seek and understand who God is, and even when they perceive him wrongly, is something that can only be determined between a person and who they perceive God as. Again, because every person is created with a conscience, and Christians should respect the consciences of those who come to a different opinion about who God is. That doesn't mean that we like it or that we accept those claims about who God is, but it means that we respect it if we're going to live in a free society that prioritizes freedom and doesn't look to coercion as a way to make converts. And please hear me, this is not to say that all quests to find God are equal. Absolutely not. Unless someone professes Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Christians must insist that all quests are in vain and lead to separation from the one true God. But neither you nor I can understand who God is for someone else. We can converse, we can contend, we can, con- we can plead and work to persuade every living person about who God is as a triune God, but every person is made in the image of God and they should have the right to determine and discern who God is without other persons or governments infringing on that quest. To allow a person to live out what he or she considers to be ultimate truth is to allow a person to live with integrity and dignity. There was a Catholic priest from the 19th century, John Henry Newman. He wrote this famous phrase. It's very brief, but it so succinctly captures the heart of religious liberty. He wrote this, that conscience has rights because it has duties. Conscience has rights because it has duties. The conscience religiously anchored or not, and how it understands and perceives its relationship with ultimate reality and transcendent truth must be unhindered according to Newman. And why is that? Because to prevent an individual from fulfilling or acting on what they believe is their highest responsibility or highest obligation or their most supreme understanding of truth is to rob them of their freedom and of their dignity. There's a Notre Dame sociologist, Christian Smith, and he's, he's done tons of research looking at different civilizations. And he, he said that by nature, man is a believing animal. Now, leave aside the animal connotation. What he's getting at is that it's in our nature. God made us religious beings. This is Romans 1 all over again. God has implanted his truths in the moral order, in the fabric of the universe. And yes, man can suppress the truth, Romans 1. We can suppress it in unrighteousness, but that does not override the fact that man, by nature, is an inherently uh, creature questing after moral meaning. Robert George is a, a, a hero of mine. He's a professor at Princeton and one of the nation's foremost advocates for religious liberty. And he said this, that to rob someone of their freedom to conscience or freedom to exercise his or her religion is to deny a very fundamental aspect of their personhood. Indeed, to deny or strip someone of his or her religious freedom individually or on a social level is to disrupt the natural rhythms of a nation or a society whose citizens find their moral bearings from religion. 
we might say that you ought to be able to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength freely and without interference. Now again, we don't have to like the claim or we don't have to like that others claim religious truth outside the Bible. We don't have to like that other religions contend for adherence. But we cannot coerce people's minds away from what they perceive as true. What must occur is the art of persuasion and evangelism, not forcing someone to agree with us. And this is this whole notion that um, if we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, we don't need a state to back that up or to defend it. The next question is, what is the role of the state concerning religious liberty? As Christians, the first thing that must be said is that all government power is not absolute. All legitimate authority that the government claims is derived authority. And how government understands religious liberty in its midst, in its midst is one of the most important considerations a government can make. A country and civilization's freedom often hinge upon whether its government allows for genuine religious liberty and diversity to flourish. Religious liberty and individual liberty go hand in hand because a state that doesn't restrict personal liberty is also likely to allow religious liberty to flourish. We're reminded of the Romans 13 passage by Paul, a classic statement on the role of government. I'm not going to read it all here, but it's Romans 13, 1 through 7. And what Paul teaches in Romans 13 is that, again, government's role is limited and its authority is delegated. Government is set up as a minister to advance God's purposes. It doesn't have absolute control over every domain and sphere of our life. Rather, the ideal government is one that operates in its proper jurisdiction or its proper lane and doesn't attempt to absolutize its claims over every area of a person's life. Now, the principle that some things legitimately fall to government's accountability implies that there are areas of our existence that are not accountable to government. In Matthew 22, 21 through 22, Jesus said this, Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. What happened here? In trying to trick Jesus into who he pledged ultimate authority to, Jesus craftily answered the Pharisees by insisting that there are legitimate interests where his followers are accountable to the state, such as taxation, such as following general laws. But then Jesus notes that Caesar and any other, gov that in any other government doesn't have the right to claim total authority. And one of those spheres where government is not competent in is matters of religion and theological truth claims. This is so, so, so important. The track record of states mingling with religion has a terrible track record. Where a state totally discards a religion by abolishing it, such atrocities like communism arise, which result in tyranny and mass murder and suppression of liberty and free thought. But with state churches that confuse citizenship in the state with citizenship in the kingdom of God, you get dead churches and unregenerate churches. I'm sorry, you get dead churches and unregenerate Christians, and unregenerate churches for that matter too. When the state treats religion with hostility, 
it props itself up as a false god. Now, when the state treats religion as an appendage to be controlled or to be manipulated over time, it numbs and deadens religion. It numbs and deadens religion. Something that, again, Jesus never gave the keys of the kingdom to the government. He gave it to the church. So what is biblical government as it relates to religious liberty? Let's get very practical. The most biblical form of government is one that gets out of the way of the church. The most biblical form of government is one that's neither hostile to religion nor too cozy with religion. The most biblical form of government is a government that allows Christian mission to prosper and to compete against all other religions that equally seek to vie for acceptance in the marketplace of ideas. Again, this idea, if Jesus is who he says he is, we don't need a state or some false god to defend that and back him up. That's our job as believers, to go and contend, to make the case that Jesus is better than any false god or false ideology like Owen talked about, like Epicureanism or liberalism or secularism or hedonism. The most biblical form of government is a government that allows Christian mission to prosper and to compete against all other religions that equally vie for acceptance. I want to repeat that again. The most biblical form of government is one that doesn't see itself as a totalizing, absolute force, but recognizes its, its limits and allows for religion to prosper and freely compete in the marketplace of ideas. To get back to James Madison, he said this. He said that the, the religion then of every man must be left to the conviction and conscience of every man. He says it is an arrogant pretension to believe that the civil magistrate is a competent judge of religious truth. So let's ask this question, what is, what is the relationship between a free society and religious liberty? Jesus said this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This simple truth implies a fundamental truth to living together in a diverse world. We should treat others the way that we want to be treated. If I don't want my religious beliefs targeted for harassment by the government, I shouldn't want the religious beliefs of other religions targeted either. As I don't want my rights to act on the deepest truths of my faith to be restricted simply because they're unpopular or perceived as strange or peculiar by some, so I should be willing to extend the same courtesy to my neighbor who believes differently than me. So how do we apply this, this understanding of a free society? It gets really, really messy at this point. Um, a few years back, how many of you remember the Ground Zero mosque controversy that happened in New York City? What happened there was really fascinating from a religious liberty perspective. Um, there were several Muslims who wanted to build a mosque at Ground Zero. There was a huge protest to prevent that from happening, and, and I totally understand the sensitivity and the delicacy issues of whether it was appropriate to build a mosque at Ground Zero, given the symbolism. I totally get that. But what we saw happening was very troubling. We saw American citizens trying to use zoning laws and regulations and the law to zone out a mosque from being built. Now, again, I'm not going to defend the rightness of the mosque. What I'm going to defend is the principle that if laws can be used to zone out a mosque because it's unpopular, it can equally be used to zone out a church if and when we become unpopular 
and to the extent that we're more misunderstood and seen as hostile to polite culture. There's a principle of reciprocity at stake. That we can't just use religious liberty to prop up a Christian social order. That if you truly believe on principle about religious liberty, that it's religious liberty for everyone, even those we disagree with vehemently. Again, you could easily be interpreting me as saying, are you arguing for relativism? Are you saying that anything goes and whatever falls under the rubric of religion is just untouchable? That religion and religious liberty is the golden ticket. That if you say, I'm going to, I'm gonna, I'm going to engage in child sacrifice and do it under the pretense of my religious liberty, you can't touch me. That's not what I'm saying. Religious liberty is not an absolute right. Where a religion's desire for free exercise legitimately harms the common good, such as public health, it is fair and reasonable for the government to restrict someone's religious liberty. And the good news is, in the history of America, we've had good laws on the books to help sort out this this weighing of interests, these competing claims. Laws like the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that help balance a person's grievance, a claim of their religious liberty being infringed upon a government's legitimate compelling interest to need to, in, to step in and restrict someone's religious liberty, but then to do so using the least restrictive means that says, we as the government, we need to restrict your religious liberty, but if we're going to do it, we're going to do it using the least restrictive way possible because we recognize religion as a public good and we want to get in your way as little as possible. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, the Apostle Paul states that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And the assumption in this text is that everything we do in every sphere of life has God's glory at stake. And thus, where a person is unable to live out their religious commitment, they're not only robbing themselves of living faithfully, they are robbing God of his glory as well. The next question is, how is religious liberty essential to Christian mission? We have the classic passage in Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus' instructions to take the gospel to every corner of the world assumes that it needs a pathway to get there. That's religious liberty. Religious liberty assures that Christians possess the freedom and safety to live out and advance the cause of Christ. And the Great Commission is where everything culminates as Christians. If we talk about religious liberty just in the abstract, if we talk about it just as a principle, which is good to do, But we leave out why do we ultimately care about religious liberty and we leave out the Great Commission, we are missing the point of why Christians should be interested in religious liberty. We advance religious liberty because the glory of God is at stake. We advance religious liberty because we believe that every person is created in the image of God and accountable to him and where God has placed him. We advance religious liberty because a nation that protects religious diversity is a nation that respects its citizens. 
We advance religious liberty because to uphold our own freedoms to proclaim the glory of God in Christ requires that other religions have the ability to live and proclaim their beliefs freely too. Now, religious liberty isn't, again, simply an abstract concept that we believe because the Constitution of the United States upholds it, although that's very important. And we want to see courts and legislatures and executives uphold a strong interpretation of the First Amendment. But ultimately, we believe religious liberty is vital to the advance of the gospel. Now, to be sure, regardless of whatever government or context Christians find themselves in, the gospel will advance. The gospel doesn't need religious liberty. Let me be very clear on that. Um, And this is happening now in Asia, where regimes hostile to the gospel cannot stop its advance, despite every effort to try to stop the gospel's advance. But using our God-given rights to appeal for religious liberty is something that we see happening In the Bible, in Acts 25 with Paul, appealing to Caesar, appealing to his rights as a Roman citizen. When Christians protect and advance religious liberty, not only for ourselves, but also for all, we protect the free market of ideas that allows the gospel to be ushered into every corner of culture. Again, the purpose of religious liberty ultimately is to advance the cause of the gospel so that God's glory may advance. If you walk out of here with one thing tonight... Walk away with that. Religious liberty is about God's glory. So, why should we not give up on religious liberty? Today, there's a lot of Christians, especially younger Christians, who are kind of burnt out from popularized, mass-produced forms of Christianity that kind of lust after persecution. They think to be a martyr for the church is the greatest thing. And to be a martyr for the church is a great thing. I don't want to dis... I don't want to disrespect martyrs at all. Please hear me say that. But we shouldn't want to be martyrs. We ought to seek out the types of environments that are free to religion and free to churches. Again, some in this camp, especially younger Christians, um, they see the persecuted church as the ultimate examples Again, you know, this idea that teaching that the rights that we claim as Americans are incompatible with embracing the sufferings of the cross. Now, I'm sympathetic. Again, I'm very, very sympathetic to that. Um, we see the most glorious things happening where the church becomes persecuted. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, as church history attests to. But it's well-intentioned but naive romanticism that the church in America has adopted towards persecution. It's right and good to be concerned about our brothers and sisters all over the world ministering in regimes that are hostile to religious liberty. But think, for example, imagine you're a 36-year-old pastor in an underground church in China. You have 12 members. You're not allowed to freely preach the gospel. The governing, governing authorities are coming after you, wanting you to register your church. You can't have a Bible safely tucked under your arm walking around society. And then just last week, your best friend, a fellow pastor, randomly disappeared. Would you rather persist in a state of hardship, like what's happening overseas, or instead would you rather have the freedom to exercise your religion openly? 
Would you rather subject your church to the margins or would you rather have your church go about its mission without a hint of government meddling? Because we have to see that religious liberty is like a lineman clearing the way for a running back. And the fact that I'm using a sports analogy and know nothing about sports is a miracle in itself. (laughs) That religious liberty is like pavement on the road to a destination. It's like a machete clearing the brush through the jungle. Now, again, Christ is building his church so the gospel will advance. But I don't see virtue in embracing hardship and embracing obstacles which impede the message and bring hardship to its messengers. Again, Paul modeled this well, both as a faithful apostle and a Roman citizen. While he reminds us of our ultimate and true citizenship in Philippians, he was not shy about asserting his rights as a Roman citizen to escape punishment when he stood before Caesar. Paul and most of the apostles did not escape the sword of the state, but it's not as if they requested martyrdom. Because while persecution can purify and build a church, freedom gives space for gospel advance. Government is instituted by God, but there is precedent for resisting a government that invades the human conscience. Again, Jesus taught us that Caesar has limited authority. Caesar is not God, and we are not made in his likeness. And so, brothers and sisters, I would plead with you that we don't have the authority to give up on religious liberty in the context that we have inherited in America. Religious liberty is not about propping up just our rights. It's about propping up the rights of everyone. And especially considering the Romans 13 context, we find ourselves in a democracy where you have the ability to vote, to vote or hand over or to cede ground on religious liberty isn't just to give up your religious liberty. It's to give up the religious liberty of others. So you have an obligation, again, out of the advance of the gospel and out of respect and love for your neighbor as someone created in the image of God to want to see religious liberty protected and nourished. I'm going to start concluding here. If you're a Christian, you ought to value religious liberty because religious liberty is the one doctrine that allows a sacramental worldview to flourish in our society. What do I mean by that? A a sacramental worldview. When we cast out transcendence, when we cast out the divine, all we're left with are are the answers that philosophers have tried to devise over countless centuries and have been unable to come up with the answers. Brothers and sisters, while we live in a material material universe, we are not materialists. God, in his glory, has given us the opportunity to respond to his glory as a new creation and to see these glorious truths permeate every area of our lives. And as new creations in Christ, we are called to testify to the truth that God's glory is the highest truth of our existence and that nothing especially not the state, should get in its way. Religious liberty allows us to bring all our values, all our ethics, all the transformative effects of being in Christ to life. So Christians who advocate for religious liberty are holding the ropes of those who labor to plant churches, evangelize, and equip the body of Christ in society. And those of us in the society 
who live under this umbrella of freedom would do well to remember the great legacy of so many strong Christians at the founding of our country who worked hard, like Isaac Backus and John Leland, who helped till the political culture in order that we might see spiritual advance happen. Minimizing the fight for liberty is a backhanded slap to someone who once held our ropes. The work of those who advocate for religious liberty and those who preach the gospel every week in church are not at odds with each other. Indeed, whenever and wherever, we ought to be holding the ropes for whatever it takes to advance the gospel. Let's pray. Holy Father, we acknowledge that you are God. And if you are God and you are creator, that means the state, that means all of us are not. And Lord, we acknowledge our, our finitude, we acknowledge that we are limited, and we take joy in your sovereignty. We take joy in the fact that your church is advancing even when it looks like hardship is upon it. Lord, I pray that we would take these truths about religious liberty and marry them to action. That we would not be indifferent to the call to advance the gospel and to love our neighbor and to create the type of context where freedom flourishes. Lord, help us honor you For the rest of this weekend, help us to bring glory to your name. We pray in Christ's name, amen.